Good morning. Thank you for being here on a rainy morning. I was concerned because I know some of you might even cross roads that are half flooded. And I mentioned that the one person who came in and she said, well, my car drives in the rain. So I appreciate that attitude. It's been a great week. Uh, um, a week ago, we read uh, Tony and Eddie's 15-year wedding vow renewal. Where are you guys at? The wedding was great. Uh, the reception was great. And right in the middle of the reception, Elvis showed up. <laughs> Had an Elvis impersonator. And, of course, I'm a fan. And I thought, my goodness, I'm in heaven. And celebrating 50 years of marriage. Is there anybody else here who has 50 or more years of marriage? Are they the only ones? Look at all the hands. Oh. <laughs> wow. Sandy, what are we? We're about four years away. We're going to strive, try to make it. Um, and then there's at the beginning of it, you remember Dr. Laura, who used to be on the radio years ago? And she was saying about all the people that were engaged forever. And you know how she defined a true engagement? She said, if you have a ring and a date. And I just saw Amanda this morning, and she's got a ring and a date. <laughs> That's in April, right? Oh, that's wonderful. I told her it gives her time to think about it. <laughs> I've seldom done uh, premarital counseling where someone didn't get uh, cold feet. And that's good because the person starts thinking, wait a minute, this is serious. You know, we're about to get married and take vows before God and have to live with this person for a lifetime and then might be blessed with children. My goodness, what am I getting myself into? So when that person, either uh, male or female, started getting cold feet, I kind of nodded and said, good, that means you're taking this seriously. So I appreciate it. Uh, in your bulletin, I want to mention to you, this is the second Sunday in uh, September, and so we begin our uh, Bible study process again. And you'll see this uh, in your bulletin on pages 10 and 11, and we've got... Uh, Two women's classes, two general classes, and you see them all there. And uh, Ken is going to start up uh, celebrating with R.C. Sproul, and I think he's starting out with the holiness of God. And I'm going to do one on knowing God through Scripture, but we're not going to start that for a couple of weeks uh, because of a couple of reasons. And so we invite you, if you're new to the church or something, I'll be having downstairs a sermon discussion. We'll get to know each other. And if you have any questions that come uh, out of the sermon, uh, we're glad to have you down there. And then, uh, where's the, uh, the other two classes? Oh, it's on the, the next page, uh, the previous page, page 9. The book of Matthew with Valerie, and then Legacy of Biblical Womanhood with Sandy. That does start today. I'm on schedule, right? Oh, yours doesn't. That's right. Okay, there are the dates. I thought something was niggling my mind. So I invite you downstairs. We have, you know, time of uh, great fellowship and refreshment downstairs. And then we go to our individual classes. 
When I was in uh, college, I was a relatively young and growing Christian, and I happened across, or someone provided for me through a ministry, some great books that helped me get grounded as a Christian. And one of them was a slim book, and it was basically, I'm not sure I got the title right, but it was about great gospel words, great gospel words. And I think it was like 90 or 100 pages, and there were three or four pages on each word. And by the time I had digested that book, I thought, okay, now my compass has spun around and lined up. There were words like uh, justification, you know, these multisyllabic words, sanctification, glorification, imputation, adoption, all these big words. And each one of them talking about a part of the process that God brings his people to through to bring them to himself and then bring them along in this world in eternal life and then toward glorification. Great gospel words. Let me put this aside. I'm not the only one who felt that way. Uh, I was reading this thing by uh, Steve Shepard, and he was talking about D.L. Moody, Dwight L. Moody. You're familiar with Moody Bible Institute and uh, Moody Church. We have a, a pastor here who uh, attended Moody Bible Institute. D.L. Moody was a great evangelist and a great Bible teacher. And he was saying, uh, Dwight Moody loved to, teach, to study the Bible topically. And it occurred to him one day he had never studied the subject of grace. And setting aside a day, Moody gave himself to the study of God's grace. But a second day was required for the subject. Even so, the third day, Moody had not finished his study in the Bible of the word grace. But by late afternoon of the third day, he was so filled with his subject and so excited that he had to go out on the street and talk to somebody about it. That was Moody. Stopping a complete stranger on the street, Moody said, My friend, do you know anything about grace? Now, see, that's what preachers do. They sit in their study, and they study, and they get so excited and so filled with the truths of God that they can't wait to grab somebody by the buttonhole and dump the whole load on them. And you're looking at the clock wondering, is that going to happen today? And that's what Moody was doing. My friend, do you know anything about grace? And surprised at the question, the man replied, grace who? <laughs> Why Moody responded, the grace of God that brings salvation. I wanted to take a Sunday on this because grace is the name of this church. It has a couple of multisyllabic great words along with it. Uh, evangelical, that comes from a Greek word in the uh, New Testament that means good news. And then Presbyterian. Now, there's a good word because I'm an evangelical, but I'm actually a Presbyterian. So when you say I'm a Presbyterian, to me, you said it all. But these days, we use those words to help people say, where are you coming from? What's your balance? So those two words describe evangelical, what kind of Christian we are, Presbyterian, what kind of Christian, what theology, what form of government. But in front of all of it is this word grace. 
And so I find myself saying, Grace Church, Grace Church, I love evangelical, I love Presbyterian, but I can't get past grace. I'm like Moody. You know, if I can say, have you hear the word grace, then we're off and running. Grace is from a Greek word, charis. It starts with an X, but, you know, sometimes like, uh, it uh, sounds like a K, like Christ, C-H. And charis is something like, like C-H-A-R-I-S. And from that we get someone who has charisma. Uh, there's a group, uh, charismatic, you know, a charismatic person or a charismatic group. And it means, the acrostic that has helped me is uh, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. This is from uh, Paul Tripp. He's a pastor, author of over 30 books. He's a counselor. Got his own website, paultripp.com. Saying, yeah, I need, they making that. I need a jerrycurran.com. You know, I can, I'll have Elvis recordings and they'll. Now listen to Paul. If you were to scan the entire human vocabulary for the most beautiful word in the universe, what word would you choose? Some might choose love, and I won't disagree. You can make a strong biblical case that the word love is the greatest word in the universe, John 3.16, Romans 5. But if you know me and his writings, you know I'm going to choose capital G-R-A-C-E, grace. You see, God's grace is the most powerful force in the universe, so I would have to argue that, therefore, it's the most beautiful word in the universe. It reaches you where you are and takes you where God wants you to be. It has the power to do something that nothing else can do. Grace can transform you at the causal core of who you are as a human being, and that is your heart. So you see... Well, I'm so delighted to be at a church called Grace Church. In fact, it was suggested, well, you've got that first word. Why don't you do evangelical one Sunday and Presbyterian one Sunday and church one Sunday? So let me give that some thought and see how that might work out. But today, at the front of our name, and it's our message to the world, and I kind of agree with Paul Tripp, the, God's greatest word. Why do I say that? <clears throat> because for me, a fallen human being, not an angel, not a demon, not a tree, not a rock. For me, for by grace I have been saved through faith. By grace. So if that's how I come to God and receive his blessing and move toward uh, glorification in heaven, that must be the most important word to me. And it comes from God. God is known as a God of grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me talk with you this morning about uh, three key things. And you have an outline there. Saving grace, sanctifying grace, and serving grace. Those are really three sermons or three Sunday school classes. And sometimes what we do in a sermon is introduce a subject. And give you opportunity to follow up with it. Well, first, let's talk about saving grace. In fact, I was reading, uh, you know, in my study on grace, there's one great uh, pastor, preacher. He's the only one, the only pastor, preacher, that I was driving down the road one time, 
in Charlotte, North Carolina, and he was having, and we were speaking at a conference, a live conference. I was listening to it on the radio, and his sermon was so powerful that I had to pull off on the side of the road. I couldn't, I couldn't drive and listen at the same time. He had a sermon called Dying Grace. My goodness, dying grace. So there are different things. Grace is so multifaceted, like a brilliant diamond. Let's talk about saving grace. The reason grace is so important is because of our condition. You see, there's really only one gospel, but there tend to be, always have been, maybe always will be, other gospels. One gospel says that you're not as bad off as people say, and there are things that you can do to redeem your own situation. There are even commands in the Bible that if you keep them, you will be closer to God. And if you keep them diligently enough, then you can earn your fallen place with God. The other side of that is that God is so gracious that he would not condemn anyone. And therefore, don't worry about it. God would never send anybody away from his presence from all eternity. And therefore, you will spend heaven and eternity by doing nothing. See, those are like two ditches on either side of a road. One is called legalism. Uh, if you keep the law of God, you will be able to please God enough to get to heaven. Whole religions are founded on that. You know, Islam, for example, is one. Uh, Mormonism is another. That if you live a certain way, you can please God enough that you can make it to heaven. The other side says, well, you don't need a sacrifice like Jesus because God is so gracious, he'd never condemn anybody to hell. And that's antinomianism. That's saying you don't have to obey God. You don't have to worry about it. No one goes to hell. And then the question is, well, then why did you have to have a sin sacrifice? The same is true on the other side. If you can keep the law of God, why then do you need a sin sacrifice? The reason neither one of those works is because Scripture says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it gets worse. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who seeks God. It says that we are dead in our trespasses and sin. And a dead person can't respond to God, can't hear God, can't do anything to please God. And so our situation is actually worse than we thought it was. Unable to seek God, unable to understand Him with our mind, to love Him with our heart, to respond to Him out of our will. And that's why it says, for by grace you have been saved, not effort, not blind trust, grace working through faith. And it even goes on to say, that which is commanded, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, is actually provided because it says, and this is not your own doing, it, faith, 
is the gift of God. See, uh, language is funny. Faith, uh, pistis in Greek, is a noun. Okay? What is the verb for faith? Have you ever faithed anything? Yeah, believe. The, the verb for faith is believe. So having faith and believing is actually provided by God. So that's how grace works. Grace is a disposition of favor towards someone who does not deserve it. You got that? In fact, let me stop there. A disposition of favor towards someone who not, doesn't deserve it and can't earn it. And so God, in his grace, looked at human beings and said, basically, unless we do something, there ain't no hope for them. They can't earn it. But how are we going to bring them into our presence because we are holy and no one who is not holy can stand in our presence. And they have committed crimes against the king, and that's treason. So how can we be just and bring them into our presence? I mean, human beings themselves cry out for justice. You hear so many times, that's not right. That's not just. We want justice. Well, how can you have mercy, another word for grace, and justice at the same time? Because the Father offered up his only begotten Son, who had no sin, and then could pay the penalty for treason. And because he was fully man, he could die. And because he was fully God, his death could have infinite value. And because he never sinned, he didn't pay for himself. He could pay for others. By grace, through faith, through Christ. So grace is that positive disposition of God toward people who don't deserve his riches and his righteousness and his love and his care, finding a way to make it happen. And it's called free grace. Not free because Christ had to pay a price for it, but free to us because there's nothing we have that we could purchase it with. Free grace, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And not only that, even the worst of sinners, the most helpless of humans, can have hope because, listen to what God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's grace. See, that is a joyful news, a joyful word, because even the most helpless can have hope, because God is the one that's deciding and extending the mercy. And he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. 
Sandy and I made the mistake, or I did, I was watching something on television, and it was a story about homeless people in California. And they were attempting to show that not all homeless people, you know, are lazy or thieves, and certainly they're not. And so they were interviewing, one man had a master's in business administration, an MBA, two RNs, and telling their story of how they got where they were. I said we made a mistake watching it because it was the most depressing thing I had watched in a long time because things had happened in these people's lives and they had been unable to recover. Something physical, something emotional, uh, something through abuse, something had happened. It had broken them and they were not able to get out of that hole. Many of them were on drugs. They had been through rehab many times. They had been through all sorts of programs. And so Sandy and I are sitting there, and I turned to Sandy and I said, it doesn't look like what, whatever you do. These people can't be helped because nothing helps them. And see, that's our condition before God. Nothing can help us because nothing does help us. We're blind and hard-hearted and hard of will. But grace comes and says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will choose, and I will not only call them to myself. It does not there depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy and grace. So, saving grace is a gift justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And that's why I love a church whose name is Grace because that is the message that we should have to the whole world. You are not only welcome, but a plan and a provision has been made for your helplessness. And there's nothing that can keep you from God because His grace can overcome any deficit. Isn't that a great message to have for people? Well, we could elucidate that more, but let's talk about sanctifying grace because sometimes this gets confusing because we say, well, okay, I understand. By grace through faith, and the faith is not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. But that, now that I'm a Christian, obviously there are all these commands in Scripture, and I have to get to work. And the reason it's confusing, because Scripture says, as you began in Christ Jesus, so continue. You're saved by grace, continue to walk in grace. But then there are all these commands, you know, do this, do that. And we're saying, worship, pray, give, serve, attend church, be merciful to others, it's just all these things, well, which is it? Have you ever been confused about that? We have even have groups out there, the Judaizers in Acts 15, who were Jewish Christians. They said to be a good Christian, you have to keep the Jewish law, the Mosaic law, washings and of hands and holy days. And that was the first big question that the church faced. And there are other people that say, well, no, you don't have to do anything. Because the grace of God is so powerful, you just let go and let God. There's a whole wonderful movie, movement of that that started in England. And so 
people come from both sides, and it can be confusing. I find it confusing. I have to work hard to, to say it carefully. In fact, I gave you a couple of quotes on the front of your bulletin of great teachers in the past because they said it so well. Look at this from Thomas Watson. Let us then ascribe the whole work of grace to the pleasure of God's will. God did not choose us because we were worthy, but by choosing us, he makes us worthy. I'll leave this quote by uh, Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher. I'm glad God graciously chose me before I was born or he would have had no reason to choose me. Well, that's... <laughs> I identified with that quote. Now, here's one more complicated by Jonathan Edwards, uh, who was, might have been um, America's greatest theologian before the Revolutionary War. In efficacious grace, that means grace that makes a difference, we are not merely passive, nor yet, yet does God do some, some and we do the rest. But God does all and we do all. Okay, right there. That's what being a great theologian does for you. He just blows your mind. Wait a minute. If God does all, why do I need to do anything? God produces all. We act all. Our own acts are what produces. God is the only proper author and fountain. We only are the proper actors. We are in different respects, wholly passive and wholly active. So, who does the work of sanctification, of becoming like Christ, of moving toward heaven in this life? Is it God or us? And having read Jonathan answered, your answer is yes. Thank you. But now we've got to deal with how does that work. We're not the only one to struggle with this. Look at uh, under sanctifying grace, I gave you one quote. Work out your own salvation with fear and trimming. Work. Okay, I got it. For it's God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. Hold it. You just told me it was God who was working. And now you tell me it's me who's working. Is it me working or God working? And he goes further. He said not only is the work being done in your life being done by God, but the will, the desire comes from God. But then I started to think, well, that can be okay. Those two could work together very closely. In other words, God works in me to give me a desire to read my Bible, a desire to be with God's people, a desire to sing, a desire to pray, a desire to give. But then I've got a problem. I want to keep my money and not give. I want to sit and keep my mouth shut and let other people sing. I don't want to let the fall festival go on and let other people put it on. You know, prayer meeting is great. I'm glad the church has it, but that's not for me. Am I the only one that feels that way at times? I hope I'm not alone. I wish I were. But I bet some of you feel that way too. There's a weight tied to my ankles, and it drags when I try to do something. But where do I want to get the power to do that, to overcome my own flesh? It's God who's at work to will, to give you that desire, and to work. Because we actually do give. We actually do pray. We do all these strange things. Giving away money? Explain that to me. Because God is willing and working. 
And this is why. Let me give you a couple of scriptures. Philippians 1, 6. I'm sure of this, that who, he who began a good work in you will bring it com- to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Paul was telling the Philippians, I'm confident in you. Because God who began a good work will bring it to completion. See, we are confident that God is going to work in our lives. And he's working your lives. And that's the confidence I have in you. But why? For two reasons. Number one, God is willing and working in your life. And secondly, you're responding and working. You see that? They're working together. Listen to this quote. I think I gave it to you in your sermon outline in the bulletin. Let me check and see. Oh, yes, I gave it to you. Paul from 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to read the whole thing. I, I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's Popeye, right? And his, gra- and his grace to me was not without effect. That's why Jonathan Edwards said, efficacious grace. No, I worked harder than all the other apostles. Sounds like boasting, doesn't it? But he did. And then in this English, there's a dash. And it says, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Yes, it's both. Paul worked hard. And faith is a working word. And yet he gave the credit to God. See how that works? Faith works in us. Grace works in us to conform us to the image of Christ. So that's a brief introduction to sanctification, growing in Christ. Let's not fall into one ditch is what we do. Or the other ditch, God does it all and we don't have to do anything. Let's stand right here in the middle in Scripture. God wills and works And we work harder than anybody else. See, grace or the work of God is the foundation of our belief. The work we do is the fruit. We are not working to earn justification. That would be going back. We're working out of justification toward glorification. See, We have to start getting that straight in our minds because we're fallen people. Let's go do this final one, serving grace. Well, if you have a church named grace, and it's the greatest word in God's universe, and it's the active principle in our lives, what does that mean for us? It means that we are known as a serving people and a giving people and a gracious people. And the first way it it, it shows itself Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just in Christ, in Christ God forgave you. Forgiven people should be forgiving. Does that make sense? People who have been received grace are gracious to other people. And kindness and compassion are synonyms for grace. What does it say? Forgiving each other. What, what do you forgive? Offenses. It assumes that fallen people living together 
are going to offend each other unintentionally, intentionally, whatever. And it says, Grace Church, full of grace people, will have as their goal to act gracious to one another. It is by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by work, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Prepared in advance. Good works. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. To each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. That means we're not just a bunch of worker ants running around all doing the same thing. It means God in his grace decided each person is a unique individual. And I'm going to give them a unique, experience, a unique excuse me, personality. I'm going to give them a unique passion. I'm going to give them a unique life experience. I'm going to give them a unique spiritual gift. I'm going to put that all together in this person, and I'm going to have different people have different jobs, different assignments, different manifestations of grace. This is why the church is so great. So you say, okay, well, there's Jerry, okay? He, he, he's good academically. Maybe he could be a teacher. And then Jerry says, well, I'm kind of an introvert. I'd rather be studying than in front of a crowd of people. See, you got to bring the personality into it. And so that's why I became a lawyer or a professor of history instead of a pastor and a preacher. And you're saying, wait a minute, you are a pastor and preacher. Who decides who gets the jobs? God does. And so God said, this is your job, Jerry. And so here I am. Christ apportioned it. And who is able for these things? I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. He was an apostle, and he says, I became a servant of the gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. See, God, uh, Paul considered being an apostle a gift. You get to travel around end up in jail, read some things. He, he was beaten three times with cat of nine tails. He probably couldn't sleep at night because all the scar tissue on his back, he always had to sleep on his side. You consider this a gift? Yes, because it came from God, and it was through his grace, and there's a purpose to it, and it's the way he's given me to serve. So, you look around, and your first question in church should be this. Where do you want me? You say that to God. And then you go to his representatives, your elders and deacons and committee people, and say, look, where can you use me? And I say, well, what have you done before? What's your experience? What's your personality? What's your spiritual gift? What's your passion? See, I ask these questions, and we try to find what it is. And sometimes it takes experimentation, trial and error, you see. We had a, I was in a big church one time with a lot of children, and they couldn't get enough people 
to take care of the nursery and the children's church. So they came up with a brilliant idea. Every member of that church would be put on a list and they would be assigned a rotation. Great idea, right? We found out within two weeks that there are people in this church that did not need to be in nursery or first grade or kindergarten. They needed to be somewhere else because God had given them another grace gift. And our job was to find out what that gift was and get people where they were supposed to be. But God's giving you a grace gift. And that gift is how you... It may change from year to year. It may change as the church changes. But everybody has a place. To each one of us, grace has been given. As Christ apportioned it, we have different gifts according to the grace to each of us. But here's the key about how grace works in service. Listen to this. The gift is not like the trespass. If the many die by the trespass of one man, that was Adam, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? You know the key word to describe grace in the New Testament? Abundant, free, overflowing. You see, that's the way I picture like the fall festival. I said, let's use this line. You'll see it in the bulletin. Our grace gift to South County. What does that mean? Freely we have received grace. Freely we will give. It's out of an overflow. It's out of an abundance. Because God, when he pours out grace, is not skimpy. He just floods the place with it. It's everywhere. It's in our conversation. It's in our giving. It's in our praying. It's in being accepted to God. It's being forgiven when we stray. It's by having pastors and elders and deacons that God has called and appointed to minister to us and bring us back. It's having teachers of the word. It's having people that graciously planned and sacrificed and gave so on a rainy day we can be inside in a beautiful sanctuary, worshiping with air conditioning. Everywhere we look, there's grace. Grace put people at the outer door and the inner door. Grace put people in the nursery. Grace put people teaching your children. Grace puts people here every Wednesday when people mow acres of stuff here. Who am I leaving out? I can't remember all the grace gifts that makes a church function. And we tend to forget it. And right in front of us is overflowing evidence. Vacation Bible school. Fall festival. You know why we do all that? Because grace is overflowing. Because there's such an abundance of it. And someone says, why are you putting on a fall festival and out here working so hard and it's all free? And you're going to say, because of grace. I have just been flooded with grace. Thought I'd share a little of the extra with you. Deacon Mercy Fund. People coming in carefully and personally and graciously helping people with the funds that you provided. Now listen to Acts 20, 24. This is when Paul was saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders. 
I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. See, that not only makes life worthwhile, it makes dying worthwhile. You get that? It not only makes living worthwhile, it makes dying worthwhile. That's the gospel. That's the gospel of grace. Aren't you glad that you're in a church called grace? God's greatest word, for by grace we have been saved. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your grace. It's a attribute of, you, of your character. It overflows and fills our lives and our church and our universe. It's the greatest word we know. Father, help us be a church characterized by grace to each other and to the world. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let us stand and sing to the Lord a song of response. Hymn number 498, Jesus, What a Friend for Sinners. That's hymn number 498.